0: Only
1: redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. You
0: have to learn to like new things. What fresh hell. Laughing in the face of motherhood. Why are you asking your anxious kid what they want for breakfast? Just give them something.
1: With Margaret Apples and Amy Wilson. No, just kidding. You're getting a shot at the doctor. A podcast that solves today's parenting dilemmas. So you don't have to. When you find yourself exasperated, there's a good reason. Hey,
0: everybody, welcome to What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy. And this is Margaret. And today we are talking about helping kids manage anxiety. I need this one. (sighs) I mean, all kids have anxiety, but some kids have a lot of anxiety. Yeah, I am an anxious and I have an anxious. I have one of three who's really noticeably more anxious.
1: I have one of three is noticeably more anxious and all three
0: have their moments, right? Yeah, I mean, we are like... I come from a long line of anxious people. <laughs> and Irish anxious. Irish anxious. <laughs> and I remember, and I think I've said it before, my mom at some point, I was like, I just can't stand this anxiety. And she was like, listen, the anxious bunny survives. <laughs> and I always like think of that, like anxious is not terrible. Like you think of it as an, as an only negative thing, but the anxious bunny survives. You know who would agree
1: with you? Dr. Lisa DeMoor, who has a new book out called Under Pressure about managing stress and anxiety in girls, and we're going to interview her later in the show. But that's sort of her first point she makes in the book is that anxiety is okay. It's what it makes us do <laughs> that, that maybe isn't okay.
0: Yeah. that's. I think that's like a good place to start is to be like, anxiety is okay. And we are talking, I, we're going to do a whole other episode because I have a lot of thoughts about being an anxious mom. But right now we're talking about anxious kids and how to help our anxious kids. All right. So, let, so
1: let's start with uh, statistics because you know I love those. Amy, you always like
0: to lead with statistics. Lean in. I lead with stats. I think looking up statistics helps your anxiety. It does. I don't feel anxious at all. (laughs) It calms you. It calms you.
1: I'm so calm to find out that there's about four and a half million kids in the United States with diagnosed anxiety. That's about 7% of kids aged 3 to 17 have actual diagnosed, have sought professional attention anxiety. And we had a speaker named uh, Dr. Michael Sweeney from Metropolitan CBT. he He's amazing. I'll put links to his work up on our show page. So Dr. Michael Sweeney is the head of Metropolitan CBT, which stands for cognitive behavioral therapy, which to explain it in its most simple terms, that's a kind of therapy where it's like you have a fear of flying. Let's help you very gradually get used to the idea of getting on an airplane and then you're going to get on an airplane. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's results Based. And he came and spoke at our PA meeting. And based on the attendance at that meeting compared to usual attendance, I would argue that a lot more than seven percent of kids have anxiety that their parents notice.
0: Yeah, and I mean we could go off on a eighteen year long tangent about why we put too much pressure on kids and why anxiety is up in kids, but I think we're going to sail right past that and try to stay really practical.
1: There's some kids for whom anxiety is truly baked in the cake, and so we're kind of talking about that today although it's it, so it's present in some kids more than others and yeah that's that's what we're talking about
0: i mean all of my kids are anxious but one of my kids is just in a completely different category here's what i want to talk about because and when i think
1: about my anxious kid it's easy to miss anxiety in kids because they don't they don't say gee i'm really feeling worried about this they they show us they don't tell us and they don't even necessarily know a three-year-old with with a racing heart and, you know, a headache from anxiety doesn't know to tell us that, and so they will act out in other ways. So did it take you, because it took me, a long time to figure out that the strange and, and negative behaviors that my kid was exhibiting were, in fact, anxiety-based? Hmm. Did you know from the beginning? Maybe if you
0: come in, knowing what you're looking for, it's different? I... I guess I did in some ways. And I and I think also anxiety is often part of a ball of things going on that it's Truly. rarely like a single outlier symptom. That's right. That's right.
1: It has a high comorbidity, they call it. That's or-
0: right. That's right. It tends to go with other things. So it's like it's anxiety, but it's also a lot of other things. And I have had a lot of conversations in trying to help my anxious kid of like, which is the tip of the iceberg problem and which is the foundational problem? And it's like, sometimes you get confused with that. Like, is anxiety the thing we need to deal with or do we deal with other problems and the anxiety will go away? You know, you're kind of chasing around in circles sometimes.
1: Yeah, it's true. Let me explain what I mean. I I found a quote, Dr. Liz Mathis wrote this for anxiety.org about how anxiety in children can be kind of hard to recognize sometimes. She said like, this is, this is, it tends to manifest, she said, as negative behaviors that you may have glimpsed briefly in the past that are becoming consistent and intense. And this is like one of my parenting rules. When I find myself saying, what is wrong with this kid? There's something wrong with this kid. Like, why is the kid, why is the kid crying at Disney World? Because he has an ear infection. Like there's,
0: (laughs) when you find yourself exasperated, there's a good reason. Let me just highlight that quote, because that is like, if you get nothing else from this episode, that is great. If you find yourself saying what's wrong with this kid, find out what's wrong with the kid. That's a great, I've never heard it before. And that is a great takeaway.
1: I'm going to put that on a, uh, I don't know what, on a coaster. <laughs> I like
0: it. Put it on one of those like Instagram things with the setting sun behind it. <laughs> yes. that, that thing's going to I'm going to mean
1: that. So in, in my child's case, it was extreme irritability. And I already had a notion that this child was anxious, but I had to have it explained to me by a child psychologist that irritability in young children is anxiety. It's the same thing. This child doesn't have two different problems. There's one problem, and this is how they're manifesting. They're showing you outwardly the sort of you know inner storms. But it took me a long time to figure that out. It can manifest as irritability. It can also manifest, strangely enough, as indifference, like does your anxious kid, or do you know anxious kids, not to get too specific about ours, but I've seen anxious kids really like underplay things. Right, it's like shy kids are anxious, which is hard to... Shy kids are anxious. And sometimes shyness can present as like indifferent, as like, this is boring, you know? Like like a parade's going by and they're, and they're weirdly disengaged and not even looking and acting like they don't care. And they might be an anxious kid who hates loud noises, but it but it manifests as are
0: you like paying attention? Well, I had this very specific example this week where I sent one of my kids to a class and it was a um, comic book drawing class, which I was like, oh, this is perfect for him. He loves to draw. He makes comic books on his own. He's going to love it. And then I was like, how was it? And he's like, it was terrible. I just kept my head down on the desk the whole time. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? And first of all, it turned out he was running a fever and he was sick, which was part of what was going on with him overall. What's wrong with this kid? Something was wrong with him. But then I had to take like a whole separate time and start talking to him. And he's like, I just don't have any ideas. And I was like, well, let's think of some ideas. And he thought of an idea about like a spider who is a good piano player. That's what his comic book is going to be about. And all of a sudden he was like, I have a million ideas and I can't wait to go. And I've got to get this special kind of pen. But like, until he could get over the anxiety of, I don't have a good idea, he was just presenting as like, I am bored and uninterested in this.
1: This is fascinating to me because my anxious child used to refuse to participate in art class. And this art teacher said, I am finally going to let your child just sit there. Your child's not bothering anybody. Your child does not want to participate. So I'm just going to let that be. And this isn't still the case. This is, this is when this child was, you know, in pre-K. It never occurred to me that that was part of the anxiety but I guess it was. Like
0: I don't I don't know what to do so I'm going to do nothing. Right. Like I don't have a good enough idea. I mean, we all do that sometimes as adults. Like I can't go to that. I would be bad at that. You know, and you have the choice. My sister-in-law who I cite a lot, but she talks about this picture of elementary school that it never occurred to me having three kids in elementary school as an adult, you choose to pursue things all day that you are good at and you feel confident doing. But as a child, all day, you're like, it's now art class. Next up, music class. Now, math. Next up, social studies. And like, imagine if your day was just being picked up and plunked into like a hip hop dance class. Okay, next up, you're going to go in the kitchen and try to cook something. Like, it's very anxiety producing. The thing of like, we're just picking you up and plunking you down in eight different things, some of which you're going to be good at and some of which you're not going to be good at. And we're not really going to explain that to you. Like it's very, it's crazy. And there's like next up archery. Like if, if you had to do that as an adult, it would be so anxiety producing.
1: Uh, yeah. I hate, I hate doing things that are outside my comfort zone. You're right. I never, never occurred to me. Kids do that all day long. I've actually read that that's that's a good thing for kids with ADHD too that that life gets easier for them because as you get older you spend less and less time doing some stupid archery thing that you didn't want to do.
0: Yeah, and and that's something that I've had to really think about with my guy who's kind of self-directed and not very malleable and like sticking him into eight different things all day where it's like now archery like he's never going to thrive in that environment and so I try to help him lean into things he's good at and realize that a lot of this is just going to be like him getting through the day and that it's going to cause anxiety. And we can talk about that anxiety, but of course it's going to be anxiety producing to a kid who's not like, his strengths are not, oh my God, let's change and be be a jack of all trades and be kind of good at everything. My youngest is, she thrives in elementary school. She's like, I tried it, I loved it. I mean, she's just meant for that world, but some kids aren't. And helping them
1: sort of shape their experience, it's our job, but there are pitfalls, right? Like, if we help kids avoid what makes them anxious, it's, you know, short-term game, but long-term, a really bad idea. Give me an example. Well, like, (laughs) I was a kid who mysteriously had a stomach ache every Wednesday because Wednesday was gym, And Mrs. Loftus made us play dodgeball every week. and
0: Right. And you didn't like the sensation of being hit in the face with a hard rubber ball.
1: So I had a stomachache. Now, I was not a kid who had sort of, you know, diagnosed anxiety. But yeah, I I had a stomachache every Wednesday. I took a while for my mom to figure it out. But my avoiding athletic things as a child has not made me an adult who is sort of sanguine about trying athletic things, (laughs) like they terrify me, except for basketball in the backyard. I'm like terrified of sports. Avoiding something. I'll, I'll give you a quote. Dr. David Spiegel, who is a behavioral scientist at Stanford, says that for anxiety, avoidance is not a good strategy. Avoiding what you're fearful of makes it like it isn't happening. And the more you avoid it, the worse it gets.
0: I agree with this hundred percent. I use the metaphor all the time of my dream where I'm being chased by a bear. And then I turn around and I wake up because like the thing that's scary is the idea of being chased by a bear. Like, and I agree in general that this is absolutely true, that like facing your fears, when you let something become scary, it just grows and grows and grows. And the bear you're being chased by becomes huger and huger and huger. And at a certain point, all you can do is turn around and look at it. And it's like, you've made it this gigantic, horrible monster when really it's not anything that's that bad. But the flip side of this with anxious kids is at the same time, you have to avoid the temptation to be like, it's no big deal. Just do it. Just try it. And I had a funny example of this this week where my son wanted to bake a cake for a party we were having. And I like vanilla icing on chocolate cake and my kids like chocolate icing on chocolate cake. I dislike it enough that I will not eat chocolate icing on chocolate cake. And so I was like, can we make it half vanilla and half chocolate icing? Because I wanted to have some cake. And he was like, no, I want to make it chocolate cake. So it looks like a football. This was the fight we were having. And he turned to me and he's like, mom, you have to learn to like new things. You have to try it. And it was like my voice coming. And I was like, I'm never going to like chocolate cake with chocolate icing. I'm 47 years old. That's never going to happen. But I was like listening to him condescendingly be like, you have to learn to like it. And I was like, oh, that's so annoying that I'm constantly telling them that. But this is a little the thing that happens with anxiety. Like, just go jump off the high dive. It'll be fine. Just try it. Like, if you dismiss the anxiety and go straight to like, you just have to do the thing you're scared of, you're missing a step.
1: It reminds me of the authors of Just Say This we had on last month, and they were talking about how you have your first step with your kid who's struggling, whatever it is, has to be empathy. So I think that's particularly true for anxious kids. And you're right. Sometimes I do skip the step like, oh, come on, it's no big deal. You can do it. Start with, I can see that this makes you, you know, makes you nervous. I know that you hate chocolate cake with chocolate icing. I know that you do.
0: And part of your offer needs to be like, how can we mitigate what is scary about this? So for example, like, okay, You don't even want to try going to the new ninja gym in town because it seems athletic, it's scary, and things you don't like. Like, how about we try the class, we do a sign-up class, and we give it a trial class. Okay, even with my anxious kid, like, sometimes it takes three times, you know? And But I often have to make some sort of trapdoor bargain where I'm like, okay, I want you to go to this place and try it, but if it's too loud, I'm going to bring a kind of headphones that blocks out the sound. Like, I have to have a plan. It's not fair for me to be like, you have to try it. And if you get overwhelmed, too bad. Like, he's saying, like, I'm worried about something that I'm actually really worried about.
1: Right. It's real. It's real. And and you're offering an accommodation that
0: isn't just avoidance forever. So that sounds like exactly the right strategy. That's it. It's like accommodation within the anxiety is really important because... I think the anxiety for my anxious guy and for myself is like, I don't want to just try it like what I might really get uncomfortable and be miserable there. Like I'm, I'm maybe not willing to just be like, I'll give it a try. I'll try chocolate. ice. It's like, I've eaten it my whole life. I know I don't like it. Like I'm not, I'm don't want to try it again. And so like finding that accommodation that helps you it's, I mean, we were talking about with picky eaters for my really picky eater guy. There are times where he's like, I cannot even have that on my plate. I am so grossed out by it. And our big accommodation sometimes is you have to sit through the meal with it on your plate without complaining.
1: That's what Dr. Sweeney would say. I've I've talked to him about the sort of accommodations that you have to make for a kid who's anxious. And he would say that's sort of metaphorically, like sitting with it on your plate, that that needs to exist because otherwise the picky eater can start moving the goalposts from I can't have green beans on my plate to nobody can have green beans on their plate at this table because it's gross to I can't eat anything green to, you know, if you accommodate, if you accommodate it, they just move the goalposts and it gets bigger and it moves from I can't, I can't do the ninja camp to I can't do any camp to, you know, I have to stay home all the time or whatever that <laughs> you have to, you you can't just allow the anxiety to
0: take over. Uh, you have to pull the line. Right. So it's like you can make accommodations that make participating easier, but you cannot make the accommodation. You don't have to participate. You don't have to have green beans. In the, we'll all not have green beans in the room because it bothers you. Like you have to find the, the right level of accommodation that gives the safety valve, but is not like, okay, because you're anxious, you don't have to try anything. Right.
2: Even,
1: even when it breaks our, our hearts as parents to see them struggling and you do want to just make it all go
0: away, that's not what's going to make the anxiety better. Oh, yeah. That's almost never the right choice, parents. Almost never. All right. Well, we have a lot of thoughts about anxiety, obviously, with our own anxious kids. So let's talk to Dr. Lisa Damore.
1: Yep. She's the author of the new book, Under Pressure. This book is great. It's specifically about stress and anxiety in girls, but guess what? It's very applicable, whether it's girls or boys. And we'll talk to her a bit right after this. So our guest today is Dr. Lisa DeMoor. She's a New York Times bestselling author with a doctorate in clinical psychology, and she's a regular contributor to CBS This Morning. Dr. DeMoor directs the Center for Research on Girls at the Laurel School in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and her brand new book is Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Dr. DeMoor, thanks for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. So you call the anxiety and stress in girls an epidemic. And you say that that the rates have spiked for girls in particular starting at about 10 years old?
3: That's what we're seeing. We're seeing reports coming out from the research side that tell us that at this point, 31% of girls are reporting anxiety symptoms compared to 13% of boys. And there was another study that looked at the change in girls reporting the feelings associated with anxiety, nervousness, dread, and things like that. And for them, there was a 55% jump between 2009 and 2014, and no jump for boys. So why do you think that is? There are a few ways we can slice it. One thing that we have long known as psychologists is that when children are distressed, girls are more likely to collapse in on themselves, and boys are more likely to act out, to get themselves in trouble. So... It's long been the case that we're more likely to see anxiety in girls than in boys. It's interesting to watch these rates start to change so quickly. So there's the kind of socialized, gendered expressions of distress explanation. But then the reality is there are a great deal, kind of a great number of things that girls are contending with that I think make their situations especially stressful. Okay, like what? So, for instance, we have put a lot on girls' plates without taking anything off. Girls are now crushing it academically. I mean, they are absolutely stellar students. And, you know, the expectations for them are high, the opportunities for them are tremendous. That has not diminished the pressure they feel to be cute, if not hot, (laughs) to be engaged socially, to be, you know, agreeable to the people around them, to make themselves available to meet the needs of others. I do think it's the case that for boys, when they are really, really bringing it academically, they may not also be spending quite as much time worrying that they also must be gorgeous and fit.
1: You know, my son attends an all-boys high school, and he would say that he's so happy to have that taken off the table, that that it just does not matter what you wear or what you look like. It's not something he spends time thinking about.
3: That's true. And I think there's no girl, very few girls, regardless of their circumstances, where the culture lets them off that hook. Yeah. Yeah. So there are things like that. I think there are also factors having to do with their relationships with boys that we're not really fully addressing as adults. So there's a lot of forces at play here, which also means there's a lot we can do. What I thought was
1: so interesting about this
3: book is you start
1: from a place of of stress and anxiety are not necessarily bad words. One, not always avoidable or even often avoidable. And two, not not necessarily bad words. And we need as parents to get rid of the notion that erasing stress and anxiety from our kids' lives is, is possible or even desirable. But these seems like there are some things maybe for girls that we can help them. These are These are things you need to worry about and these are things you don't. I think that's
3: right. And I think I would not underestimate the benefit of a reframing of what stress and anxiety are all about. On the psychological, sort of the research and the clinical side, we have long understood that anxiety is a normal and healthy protective function. It's sort of the alarm system that alerts us to threats on the outside or on the inside. So, you know, if you're driving and someone comes up really fast behind you, you should feel a little anxious. That's something that needs to be addressed. If you're supposed to be getting ready for a meeting or a kid's supposed to be getting ready for you know a test and instead they're messing around on social media, they should feel a little anxious, You know, that that's anxiety telling them to make a change. So anxiety is part of life. It's part of what keeps us safe. And then we can also say the same of stress, that stress is what happens when we operate at the edge of our capacities, whenever we're doing something that requires adaptation. And those can be good things. It can be moving to a new city or taking on a new job or a student taking on a really hard class that they can do. And when we stop talking about all anxiety and all stress as if it's pathological, What we do is we keep kids from being anxious about even being anxious or stressed about even being stressed. And that's a problem we have right now, and we can cut that in
1: half. You talk in the book, actually, about unwanted first reactions and how you thought those were something that needed to be changed, but through your work, kind of changed your thoughts on that. Can you say a little bit more about
3: that? I will say over years, I've cared for people whose... What I've come to believe is sort of hardwired first reaction may be kind of an anxious reaction. Maybe they get a clutch feeling in their chest from time to time, or, you know, when they have to face a new social situation, they're like, ah, I don't want to, you know, and it's just, I think it really does sort of get built in. And we have good research evidence that some of this may even be inborn. And I will say I wasted a lot of people's time trying to help them change their first reaction, you know, to not get that clutch feeling in their chest, to get excited about parties. And I've now decided that was not not a good move. Um, and Grateful for the clients I've worked with who have sort of born with me as we figured out what didn't, didn't work. What I now say to people who have those, you know, really almost reflexive responses to things that are uncomfortable is I say, okay, that's your first reaction, right? Your first reaction is that you're always gonna get that tight feeling in your chest. That's okay. You don't have to fight it. You can't fight it. So let's let that reaction happen. And then let's just wait a minute. Okay. Is there a second reaction? Is there another feeling that comes, you know, along after that one? And it is amazing how much relief that provides and also how much of an opening that provides to then do something different. But as long as people are entrenched in fighting their reflex they're not really able to move forward. If they say, oh, that's my first reflex. Okay. It passed. All right. What am I going to do about this situation? Things can change quickly.
1: So I have, you know, I have kids for whom stress is sort of a motivational force and like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get all this done? But then they do and they kind of maybe secretly like it a little and they may have gotten that from me. And then I have other kids for whom stress is can sort of be a little bit immobilizing, it seems, or just para- almost paralyzing. And I, I'm realizing that it might be because some kids have this first reaction thing that they're getting a little stuck in and some kids don't. Anyway, it's, it's giving me a new way to approach my my kid for whom stress is not a
3: welcome visitor. But you're saying two things I think that are really worth underscoring there. So one is that stress really can be a moment where people get amped, you know, where they're like, okay, I'm going to take on this new thing. And it feels really big and I feel a little overwhelmed, but I'm not frightened of it. Like I'm sort of marshalling my resources to tackle it. That can be exactly happening side by side with feeling a bit stressed. So I think that's an important thing for us to embrace. The other that you're describing and this is one of my favorite things in the research on stress. Stress is a transactional process. There's no single yardstick of what constitutes a stressful event because what matters is to whom the stressful event occurs. So something that stresses me might not stress you, or something that stressed me last week might not stress me this week. And one of the ways we can be most helpful to people is to appreciate, well, what stresses you and under what conditions, and then to help them with coping. Once people are stressed, there's still a lot we can do, even under very difficult conditions.
1: Well, you talk in the book about the glitter jar that the, as a sort of metaphor, and I found that actually very helpful for understanding my my anxious kids. So Can you talk about that and how you help the sort of glitter jar moment? Or do you not help it? I guess maybe I'm thinking of it the wrong way that I need to help it.
3: Well, I think actually we help by not doing anything, (laughs) which we forget sometimes is a really useful thing. So the way I tell the story in the book is how it went down, which is I was in Texas. I was in Dallas and I was consulting with some terrific colleagues of mine at a girls' school in Dallas. And we got talking about girls sort of falling apart during the school day, you know, girls who become really, really overwhelmed. And I consult two days a week to a girl's school in my community. So I I sort of have a, you know, a familiarity with the, the life of a school day. So one of the counselors says, well, that's when I get out a glitter jar. So she leaves and she comes back with this little jam jar, clear, no label, and it's full of water and the lid is glued on, and it has like two tablespoons of sparkling purple glitter in it. And so then she, she starts shaking it like a snow globe, you know, really fiercely. And she says, when a girl gets to my office like that, I do this, you know? And suddenly like there's this storm of glitter, like you can't even see through the jar anymore. And then she says, she puts it down on the table between us. And then she says, and then I say to her, honey, this is your brain right now. Right? And all of a sudden I'm catching on, right? I'm catching on that this is genius. And then she says, And then I say to her, so first, we're going to settle your glitter. Okay, this is great. This is brilliant because this is a perfect model of the adolescent brain. This is the adolescent brain in action. This is the brain on emotion. And what we know is that when the brain is changing in the course of adolescence, as it does, it remodels, it becomes faster and more powerful, it remodels in the order in which it developed, which is from the emotion centers, which are more primitive to the higher order reasoning centers, which are more sophisticated. And so there is a juncture for every teenager when their emotion centers have been upgraded and are very, very powerful. And when those emotion centers get going, they can hijack the entire system and crash it down. And so... We sat there and just watched the glitter settle. And first of all, it's like a you know a meditative experience. And it was so powerful. And what I have come to appreciate, what is so powerful is that it actually issues instructions to the adult, which is just be calm, appreciate that your child's brain has had a hijack experience, and that it will reset itself automatically if you are patient. And it's not a fire that needs to be put out Emotions are more like a wave that rise and crest and then flow away. And there is something so powerful about transmitting the message to our kids that a big feeling is one of those things that you can ride and the only way out is through. And once you get through it, you'll feel better. And this has changed how I do practice. This has changed how I take care of my own children, which is this confidence that, It'll be okay, and it'll be okay if we just sit here and let this pass.
1: Yeah, I like this a lot, and I was actually explaining this to my own daughter about the brain and how it developed. I loved this part of your book and was reading it to her. She didn't really get that, of course, so much because she is a child. But then, then I got to the glitter jar part, and she's like, "Oh, it's like my phone!" And she has a like a phone cover, and the back of it, you know, has the glitter that settles, and it's just for. Decorative purposes, but I was sort of like, oh, you know, the next time you're feeling stressed about something, you should turn that phone over and then turn it right side up and then don't take any action. Just take a couple deep breaths and watch the glitter settle. Settle your glitter. You should put that on t shirts, is what I'm saying. Isn't that
3: hysterical? Yeah. Yeah, it's It's brilliant. brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant.
1: So at the end of the book, you sort of say, like, what we need to teach our kids to do is to ask themselves, to get curious, I guess, about what's the source of the stress? You know, why am I anxious? Where is this coming from? And that, in the answer to those questions, they're going to find their path forward, sort of out of this stressful situation. How do you suggest for parents that can't, you know, take their kids to a, a therapist or a psychologist to tell their stress and anxious kid this, and the kind of kid who rejects everything the parent says is completely ridiculous, you know, <laughs> they're they're, cons- they're rejecting the source. how do, How do parents help their kids sort of do this? gently, not while they're in glitter brain, I suppose. That's not the moment to bring up new uh, approaches. But how how does a parent sort of put this in their child's path?
3: The beauty of stress and anxiety is they come up every day for everybody. (laughs) Right? I mean, they really do. I mean, you don't have to go looking for them. They find you. So a huge amount of it will come through modeling just how we lead our own lives and how we react to our own stress and anxiety. And truly in parenting, what we do is a lot more powerful than what we say. So we can start to do things like say, hey, okay, I'm driving. There's a car behind me that's making me hugely nervous. This is really helpful. I'm changing lanes, right? To talk out loud about nerves and tension and anxiety as useful. I mean, you don't, you don't interview for problems, but you don't, You don't
1: ever assume that a kid isn't dealing with stuff. Of course they are. Kids today have a lot on their plates.
3: They do. And they're mostly incredibly graceful about it. Right. And they do have meltdowns at home, but usually it's because they held it together all day at school. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that, you know, they bring tremendous strength to school and they can and should use home as a place to let their hair down or let off some steam. Yeah, I guess so. Thank you.
1: (laughs) the glitter gets messy at home, (laughs) right? It does. It's not always the most
3: fun way to be with your kid.
1: Lisa, tell us about your new book and where we can find it and where we can find you.
3: So Under Pressure, colon, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls can be bought anywhere books are sold. It's available everywhere. And then I have a website, which is drlisa.damore.com. So D R lisadamou I also write a monthly adolescence column for the Well Family section of the New York Times. I found this book
1: so useful, and I do have a daughter, but I have sons as well. I think this book is so useful. Every kid has stress and anxiety. Every kid has times they handle it and times they kind of don't. Every parent worries about how they can be fixing it. And this book I found really helpful in sort of resetting my perspective on when to help and when to step back and what's okay to let happen a little bit. And I, I just
3: found it really useful. I'm thrilled to hear that. I, I really, um, I became a psychologist to be useful. And if I can be useful at scale, then that makes me feel even better about it.
1: Thanks, Lisa. It was so nice talking to you.
3: Thank you.
0: Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is...
1: while Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I
0: like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O oco C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread.
2: Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
0: Sure, you could go through your day just doing things you enjoy without a second thought. But with random bouts of anxiety, your days are transformed into an exciting journey through time as you revisit small insults of the past and fret about perceived dangers from the future. Riding in the car, listening to the dulcet tones of total eclipse of the heart. With random bouts of anxiety, your simple sing-along transforms into a lengthy revisit of the time in eighth grade when Becky Agnati told you you were a freak in front of your crush, Bobby Martinez. Oh, I should have said her dress looked like a burnt wedding cake. It totally did. Why didn't I think about it at the time? A long walk provides the perfect time to binge a favorite podcast. Or, with random bouts of anxiety, a good time to think about our crumbling national infrastructure. How do bridges work anyway? Like, how come I literally never see anyone checking on these bridges when I'm out walking? Shouldn't someone be making sure these bridges are still working right? I mean... God, there sure are a lot of bridges on this roof. Movie night with the kiddos is a great time to relax and unwind from a tough week Or maybe in your case, an ideal time to contemplate the future in the darkest possible way I can't believe I have to send all three of these kids to college Seriously, what was I thinking?
1: I really don't think I can afford to have three kids But I guess it's a little late to figure that out now I wonder if we can sell one of our
0: cars. Bedtime is the time to unwind after a day and settle down for seven to eight hours of rest while dreamless sleep. <laughs> oh, just kidding. You'll be up at 3 a.m. revisiting a cavalcade of perceived slights and ways you're pretty sure you've unwittingly humiliated yourself throughout the past year. Oh, my God. Why was I talking so much at book club? I should not have had that second glass
1: of wine. I always talk too much after a second glass of wine. I'm pretty sure Cindy has never liked me and now she's... She must think I'm a total blabbermouth. This is just like that time in 11th grade where I was going
0: on and on about the prom decorations. Random bouts of anxiety. Keeping your mind occupied since, well, forever. And then I
1: made that weird comment to the driver's ed teacher that one
0: time I could just tell my face. so weird. <laughs> She's pretty smart, Dr. Demore, don't you think? Oh, thank goodness for her. Thank good someone smart came into the conversation to help us out. It's important to keep in mind, like, you. okay, we're not supposed to get rid of this. This is not our job as
1: parents to smooth away every bump in our kids' lives. And I keep relearning this, but particularly when it comes to stress and anxiety. It's going to be there. It's going to happen. We arm them with
0: tools. We don't make it all go away. And it's such a good reminder for me with my own anxious guy. Don't worry about it. Like, it's just a useless phrase. Like, stop trying to fight The truth of a person's anxiety and start trying to figure out ways to help with it, but cut out the entire part of the story that is like, you shouldn't be anxious. She has an idea in her book that actually is exactly
1: what you were saying before deliberate underscheduling, she says. She says, we can ease the stress that we and our kids feel by deciding to know, do, and spend less. And I thought that was when you were just saying, like, you've gotten more last fall, you got more specific about what your kids were going to do outside of school and that it
0: it worked it has been so great for us to pull away from that heavy schedule like it's just at some point I really was in that mode where I was like my whole life was like I've got to drive her to ballet and then leave her there with the teacher and wave and be like don't forget she's here so I can peel out and make violin lessons in time and at some point my kid in the back of the car was like wow, mom, this is really hard for you, getting everyone everywhere. And like, you seem really unhappy. (laughs) I was like, uh, yeah, you know what? You make a good point. Like maybe your learning violin is not as important as us not spending all of our time screaming and yelling and like peeling around in the minivan like maniacs. It helps mom's anxiety. It helps mom's anxiety, but also like there's nothing worse for anxious kids than everything always feels like you're like dancing on the knife's edge to try to get to the next thing. Like the stress was not worth it. So let's talk about some strategies that work for younger kids
1: to to manage anxiety. Because I think as usual, there's like a slightly different approach for younger and older kids.
0: Yeah. And takeaways are going to be good because like we know what the problem is. We got the takeaway. So these are these
1: are uh, Dr. Michael Sweeney, who I mentioned before, who is a psychotherapist who works specifically with kids with anxiety. These are the strategies that he suggests that work for for younger kids when they're expressing anxiety. The first one is proximity. I mean, this is an obvious one. Like the first couple of days at preschool, you stay in the classroom and then you move further towards the door. That this is a strategy that's very effective. You have to deploy it effectively right? You can't always never leave the nursery school classroom, but it is it is something that helps if your kid is very anxious about something. If your kid really doesn't want to go to this ninja class, then maybe you're saying, look, I'll stay. I'll stay the whole time and I'll be there. And if you you know, you know need to come take a break, I'll be there. That That would be a way to get your kid
0: through the door the first time. Absolutely. And for kids with like extreme anxiety who have any kind of like spectrum type issues, proximity can be really hard. Like sometimes it's like they don't like, kids don't want to, you in the room hovering, holding onto them and stuff. There is still a way to make this work, which is just to sometimes be in the side of the room. Like, proximity doesn't have to mean, like, I'm grabbing onto you and hovering over you to make it work.
1: Right. Right. But it is something, you know, it, like, yeah, it's something you can use. And then, of course, planning, which is what you were saying, like, with, with go in ahead of time with a plan for managing the emotions that will come. Don't be afraid of that first reaction that your anxious kid is going to have or that you even might have, plan for it. And when I feel that way, I'm going to, when I walk into that party and I don't know anybody and I find it really stressful to meet new people, I'm going to walk up to somebody and I'm going to say, hey, you know, what are you drinking that looks good, right? Or, hey, I just heard you talking to this person. That you, you come up with a plan of the
0: first couple of things you're going to do that gets you over the doorstep. And especially when we're talking about younger kids, although I still use it every day, this is where my whiteboard comes in. Like I write out 3.05, walk in the door from school, 3.05 to 4 o'clock, free play, including screens, 4 o'clock, start homework, 4.30, homework break, reading, playing. I write everything out. Like my anxious guy, <laughs> it helps him so much. It, and also we don't devolve into like homework. I can't. It's like you only have a half an hour. Get as much done between 4 and 4.30. If you don't get it finished, oh, look, there's another slot coming up from 6 to 6.30 where you can finish. It helps so much to manage the anxiety for the kids to know that it's planned. It helps my anxious kids to know, hey, Monday night is meatloaf and mac and cheese. Tuesday night, like the menu's on the board so that there's not like, huh, what's for dinner? What if I don't like it? What if it's got green beans? They smell so weird. I can't stand it. Like, it, it's all set. You don't have to worry about it. We've got it. I have a story related to this because that is exactly. It, I mean, it's terrific advice. I was
1: talking to Doctor Sweeney about my anxious child and said, like, in the morning, I'm like, what do you want for breakfast? Just tell me what you want for breakfast, and like, it, and and like, I can't even get an answer to that, let alone like, get the shoes on. And Doctor Sweeney said, "You like choices. I like structure, and so does your anxious kid. Why are you asking your anxious kid?" what they want for breakfast. Just give them something. And like the heavens part of like, what? I don't have to ask them if they want cereal toast. I can just hand them toast. And guess what? That was really good advice. Yeah. They don't, and anxious kids, if you can take away the smaller decisions for an anxious child, like what's for breakfast, then do it. It's It's, I don't know why I fought that battle that I had to help them make better decisions. Just make the decisions.
0: Absolutely. And I have a nephew who stays with us a lot and we always joke because he's like, what's next? And then where are we going? Who's driving? What's next? Like he, his anxiety manifests in, he has to know every step of what's going on. And it kind of sometimes comes off as like, listen, I'm the adult. I got this, relax. And I find myself saying that to him. And it's your thing of like, what's wrong with this kid? What's wrong with this kid is that he is for whatever reason very anxious about like who's in charge and what is happening next. And so rather than my initial approach which was like could you chill out and let me handle this? I've been raising three kids for 10 years. I'm pretty good at it. Like I got this stop asking questions. Like what's wrong with this kid? He needs these answers. So what do you need to know? Let's write it out. Okay, let's figure it out. Do you want to be in charge of making sure everyone has their socks on? Like Lean into the anxiety. Whatever is wrong, it's wrong already. You're not going to fix what's going on underneath it. So help them deal with it, you know? And if that's okay, you can take a little control of some of the decisions. You can look at the whiteboard and know everything that's happening for the rest of the day. You can sometimes be in charge of X, Y, Z. Like, lean in. Dr. Sweeney says that anxiety lives in the future. And I thought that that was kind of a mind-blowing that's exactly what I'm saying with this yeah, kid, right? That's what like, I mean. What's going to happen? Who's going to drive? Who picks it up? How do you know you get the right thing? Like it's all like what is going to happen is a very anxious question for him.
1: Mm-hmm. not being able to control the variables and right, right. Yeah, you're right. Write it write it down. The the whiteboard thing is like do it for your whole life. I still with my anxious child will say make sure that this kid knows, okay, tomorrow after
0: school, don't forget that you usually go here, but tomorrow you're going there, right? We call that priming the pump, and it is so important. And if we forget to do it, like, I will occasionally send an email to the school. I forgot to remind him that he has to go to the dentist after school today. Like, you've got to tell him in the morning. Because if I pick him up at 3 o'clock and he's like, oh, great, I'm coming home to watch screens. And I'm like, oh, surprise, you're going to the dentist instead. Like, we will have a nightmare scenario. Yeah, the drums beat.
1: But then, on the other hand, I, I with an anxious kid, telling them about the you know tooth being pulled two weeks ahead of time is not a good strategy. You can't spring it on them, but nor do you give them two weeks
0: to worry about it. That's a no-win. We just had that with shots at the doctor. And for my anxious guy, it was like, wait, when do we break this news? Like, is it better to just go and be like, we're going to the lollipop factory and be like, no, just kidding. You're getting a shot at the doctor and just like take all the pain at once or try to tell him in advance and just have it be like, is there going to be a shot or not? I can't stand it. And so... We wove it in. We wove it in. And we were like, you're going to the doctor. I'm not sure if that's, there's a shot. Let's say this. If there is a shot afterwards, we'll take you for a milkshake. If there isn't a shot, you'll just get to come home and play. So like there's good in both outcomes. Let's try it. It worked fine. And he took the shot. And my, my anxious kid just had to have a flu shot. And that shot
1: anxiety, I mean, that exists in all kids and, and in anxious kids to a special degree. And he had to have a flu shot and the a very nice young doctor who gave this kid the shot said, I'm just going to show you what it's going to feel like. This was a genius technique. I'm just going to show you what it's going to feel like. It's going to kind of just be a little pinch like that. I haven't done it yet, but that's what it's going to be like. And then she puts the bandaid on
0: and the shot was over with. Oh my God. What a genius. Kind of a dangerous game, but I like it. It's genius. Yeah. And this kid, you would think the kid might be mad that they were lied to, but they were just like so thrilled it was over. No, no, that's genius. Well, when I was a kid, we would have our physicals in September when we went back to school. And I all summer long would be like, I'm kind of enjoying summer, but I cannot believe I have to go get a shot in two months. Like I was crazy. I look back and if my, my kid does it now and I'm like, Oh, why are you ruining summer? Thinking about a shot that's not happening for, and I, I often say like my kid will literally wake up and be like Christmas this year. Do we, I'm like, it's February. Like, can I get first place on the stairs coming down in the morning? And it's like, wait, are we really going to fight about this in February? And I do find myself constantly saying like, I'm not having a fight. About what's for dinner on Thanksgiving in February, but we do it, yeah, because anxiety lives in the future. That's it. Oh my god, <laughs> I was guilty of it, and now I have the parents curse. You have a just
1: like me, right? Exactly. All right, older kids. Let's talk about that because when they're as they get older, we have to help them put sort of pillars in place to manage
0: a little bit of this on their own. Yes, and let me go back to my favorite point you need to be doing this from the time they're little kids. You can't start attacking this with teens. So yes, all of this advice that we're going to give you is true, but you've got to seed it from the time they're littler.
1: You're right. I mean, these are, these are things that the little kids should be doing. And then you just sort of hand responsibility over to the adolescent that like, don't you feel better when these things are in place? You need to do them. These are the four pillars that Dr. Sumini suggests that you, you know, sort of task your adolescent with having in place. The first one is sleep, getting enough sleep for kids who are anxious is crucial. And, and Dr. DeMoore actually says in Under Pressure, she talks at length about how when she starts to treat somebody for anxiety, the first question that she will ask is, how much sleep does this child get at night? And if the answer isn't, you know, eight hours consistently, she's basically like- Nine
0: hours consistently. Well, this yeah. is this is for
1: a teenager, but yeah, eight to nine, it's sort of, you know, like,
0: okay, go fix that and come back. I find the same thing with little kids. I have a lot of people who ask me for advice about their, any kid, any age, the first question I always ask is how much sleep are they getting? I mean, I will occasionally see my kids on six hours of sleep and I'm like, "Uh, this isn't my child. This is a Frankenstein monster. And it is amazingly transformative. Sleep is amazingly transformative. If you're not getting enough sleep, it is like the foundation of a lot of problems.
1: And of course, sometimes anxious kids have trouble falling asleep. So it is, I,
0: I understand it's a little easier said than done if you have a kid who has trouble falling asleep, but put things in place. And put all your eggs in the getting more sleep basket. I just had my husband this week. I was walking around and like, you know, just having problems. And I was like, you know what? I'm putting you bed at 930 tonight. No questions. Asked. <laughs> like you've got to get 10 hours of sleep. And he woke up this morning and he feels better.
1: More sleep. Exercise an hour of exercise. I definitely see this like when my kids move their bodies, like, you know, things feel better. Things just don't seem as serious. They go out, especially if they can go outside and use their, their big words and their big voices and, you know, and throw their limbs around a little bit. It really
0: helps with anxiety. Right. And that doesn't have to be like, you know, take an exercise class. It can be like, hey, let's go out and throw a football for a while. Let's go out and take a walk.
1: Right. Or walk the dog or anything. Socializing. My kids were tasked with socializing and and not on your phone. Like have an actual in real life conversation with somebody every day, face to face.
0: Super important. Could do a whole show about this, but like the narrowing of kids' lives to, like, staring at a screen and feeling that the whole world is these, like, interactions that are happening on their screen, hugely problematic, causes depression. Yeah. Ratchets up anxiety. It's all bad. There's a real proven
1: link. I didn't even uh, quote that study in our notes for today, but I'll put it on our show page on com because the more, kid, more time kids spend on screens, the more likely they are to be depressed and or anxious. The final pillar of of that older kids need to put in place to help manage their own anxiety is structure, is, you know, the whiteboard, literal or metaphorical. Have a plan in place. Know what's going to
0: happen so you don't wonder what's going to happen. I think it's very easy to let this go when you have older kids. Like it makes a lot of sense with like six, seven, eight-year-olds, but I will be doing this with my high schooler, I'm sure. Like I all roads lead back to structure, the whiteboard, lots of information the date book, planning the date book. It just, it helps us all like that kind of structure that like, it always seems like, oh, we can never get it done. And it's like, let's make a list. If we do half an hour a night, can we get it done? You know, oh we have to read this whole book. What if we do a chapter when you get home and a chapter before bed every day for a week? Look, that's how we'll read the book. Like breaking stuff down, planning and giving structure, always the right thing. And the offline
1: like written down date book and lists and things like that, of course, digital natives like our kids are a little bit less likely to do that stuff, but it helps. My oldest high school really just drills into them, like use the planner, write it down. And And so this kid who has a lot of homework to juggle, high schoolers these days have a lot of homework, but this kid knows he has two tests next week and then a paper the Monday after that. And so this kid has gotten really so much better in high school at looking way out. Like I have to do, I have to, an hour, I have to do half an hour tonight, an hour tomorrow night. So I'm not like scrambling on Sunday night with a stomachache because I, I can't get it all done. And yeah, so as your kids get older, you, you know, you hand that over to them and hopefully they do it. And, you know, where I am now with my adolescence, I'm still sort of like, did you remember to do this thing? But, but structure.
0: Yeah. But you're helping, you're building the pieces in. Amy, we could talk about anxiety for 10 years. Let's be honest. There's so much to say. <laughs>
1: But but I think we, I I think today was, I think we solved it.
0: I think we solved it. We definitely solved it. And lots of resources available from this one on the website. So go to whatfreshhealthpodcast.com and Amy will have references for you guys who want a deeper dive into this. You anxious folks. And we also want
1: to thank Dr. Lisa Damore. Her new book is Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Like I said, guys, I thought this book was, really applicable to girls and boys. And I I really recommend it.
0: And you guys can always find us in our usual spots. We're on Facebook at What Fresh Hellcast. And you can find our Facebook community there as well. We're on Twitter at WFH Podcast. We're on Instagram
1: at What Fresh Hellcast. And I'll put up the links to all the uh, resources that we talked about on today's episode on our show page at whatfreshhellpodcast.com. Thanks
0: for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks.
4: you listen to your podcasts.
2: Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters.